Hey everyone! So, as you can see, today we're going to do a little historic exploration and this has been a request to specifically look at the time of Napoleon Bonaparte. There's quite a lot of information on Napoleon out there so what I'm going to try to do is to give you a little overview of what Napoleon meant for Europe and for the changes that we're going to see playing out across the continent. So here we are in the year 1789, so just before Napoleon, basically about five years before um, he took on the crown of France we can see that France at time looks pretty much the way it looks today. We have a sort of natural border along the Mediterranean coast, as well as here along the Atlantic coastline up to Brittany, and here along the Channel. We have the Pyrenees here, building a sort of natural border to Spain. And we have the Alps, another mountains up here in this area. And the Rhine River, forming a border to Germany. We can also see Great Britain looks not very different, how could it, except for Ireland being entirely part of Great Britain. We see Portugal and Spain. So this part here, I think, hasn't changed too much, but on the other side, um, we see a lot of changes. Switzerland is pretty much in its current borders, but north of Switzerland, where you would have Germany today, we see a great number of small states and um, political entities that form um, part of the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire is marked by this red line here, so it goes from the Baltic Sea through Prussia, close to Berlin here, and it incorporates all of what today would be the Czech Republic, goes through the empire of the Habsburgs all the way down to Trieste, this would be part of Italy today, South and Tyrol, north of Switzerland, and also includes the Netherlands and the Netherlands of the Habsburgs, um, I think previously this was Spanish Netherlands, so what would today be Belgium? About 100 years prior, the Habsburgs had lost Spain, but they'd kept this part here. So we can see Prussia is quite large and extends along the Baltic Sea all the way to Königsberg, or what would today be Kaliningrad. We have Poland, 
taking up space all the way here, almost to Kia. So further to the east end today. With the Russian Empire up here, we have Sweden and uh, Finland together. And Norway belonging to Denmark. Italy's not been unified yet, so there's a number of states in this area. And here we have the Ottoman Empire sharing a border with the Empire of the Habsburgs. Right, and the story basically starts here on this small island on Corsica where Napoleon Buonaparte is from. Originally, he spelled his name with a U, Buonaparte, as his family was originally Italian. And in Corsica, um, they do speak, I think it's fair to call it a language. I'm not sure whether it's classified as a dialect or as a language. But basically, the, the spoken language is very closely related to the um, Italian of Tuscany which makes sense, this is quite close. Corsica, however, was part of France already. And this too is a bit of a complicated history. Uh, from what I understand, there was a certain amount of conflict around whether or not Corsica was fully incorporated into France or whether it should be fully incorporated. Um, so a bit of a difficult history that Napoleon basically grew up with and that he uh, sort of experienced firsthand in his family. And I think he took a bit of that conflict with him when he moved to France later. He first lived in Marseille and then later moved north, of course. He was an officer by the age of 16. It's quite early on, which was normal at the time. He returned to Corsica for a while and lost his place in the army because he stayed there for too long. But since the army was lacking officers, he was allowed back. And not only that, he also got a promotion. In 1796 to 1797, he was deployed to Italy to fight against the Austrian army. And he was successful. You can see here, we have a number of these maps that I don't want to go into do too much detail here. But you can always see the blue lines are the uh, French troops. The red lines are the Austrian troops, and the thinner red lines are the Austrian retreat, which we're going to see quite often. So we can see that the troops of France were in this area, about here and here, and then sort of moved in this direction. Quite a great number of lines. And uh, the Austrian retreat 
would have moved here from Milano to Beaulieu and then towards Mantua from both sides, from what I can understand here. Um, basically, Napoleon was very successful here in Italy, which made him quite popular. Um, and he was allowed to continue his explorations after this first success came his journey to Egypt which also was relatively successful however in Egypt, they ran into the problem that Admiral Nelson destroyed the French fleet. So they were sort of cut off. If we look back at the original um, map here, Egypt isn't included, but basically Napoleon ran into um, the Ottoman Empire in Egypt started a war with the Ottoman Empire as he continued um, towards Palestine. This here would be Anatolia, so a bit further down here. Um, and in the end basically had to flee from Egypt. Nonetheless, he was welcomed back. Um, he was seen as a great success. Right, we can see it here. So across uh, Sinai, up north, and in this case, this isn't the Austrian army, this is the uh, Turkish army. And basically, he had to leave from there. Like I said, it was seen as a success. And I think the French Empire wasn't too worried about, it, um, about Egypt at the time and what they wanted to do or not do in Egypt. And you have to keep in mind that this was the time of the French Revolution. So lots of ups and downs, um, quite a lot of chaos, I would say. So I think a lot of the focus simply was on uh, interior issues. Here we can see the uniform of the time. It says here during the Napoleonic Wars they were um, quite noticeable, quite expensive, but they probably didn't look like that for too long, especially considering they were white. So after a few weeks they probably didn't um, look the way they should have according to regulation. But there was not their worry. So this is the corps d'élite of the Grande Armée, um, which was sort of the personal soldiers of Napoleon. They had uniforms for parade. And here we're moving to one of the enemies of Napoleon. So. Um, here in Austria, I think it's quite interesting. There's a treasury that you can visit in Vienna where you can see the old crowns of the Habsburgs, the insignia of uh, their power. And 
You also find one of the cradles of Napoleon, son of Napoleon II, if I'm not wrong. So it was quite a difficult um, relationship between Habsburgs and Napoleon. On the one hand, um, the Habsburgs had lost Marie Antoinette to the French Revolution, but on the other hand, they also sent another one of their daughters, Marie-Louise, to um, be married to Napoleon later. And the Austrian Emperor at the time, or specifically the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, was Francis II, who we can see here. I find this a really fascinating image of him. It's not exactly that of a sympathetic man, I think. He looks quite serious. But we can see that he's a very powerful man. Usually, when you see this portrait, he's listed as both Francis II and Francis I, in that order. The reason for that is that initially he was the Holy Roman Emperor. So of this entire area here, which includes part of um, the Habsburg Empire, you can see that all of it is included, and also the different German states and cities, as well as parts of Prussia. This entity came to an end during the Napoleonic Wars, and instead we have a Habsburg Empire, and he crowned himself um, Emperor of Austria, which made him Franz I. His reign was from 1792 to 1835, and there was pretty much a continuous war with France throughout. Most of the military issues were led by his younger brother, Charles, who we can see here. Another important person was the later Chancellor Metternich, who we can't see here, um, but who became quite important after the Napoleonic Wars during the Congress in Vienna. But we're not quite that far yet. So during the Napoleonic Wars, and pretty much all of Europe was involved. And we can see a little overview of the different uniforms here. Doesn't say much more other than soldiers. We have here Austria-Hungary, 1800, we have Bavaria, 1802, and Württemberg, Baden, Kursachsen, Preußen, 1806, this is Prussia. We have France, 1808, the different uniforms. We have Italy and Holland. We have Westphalia under Jérôme Napoleon, 
which is interesting. Um, Westphalia initially was part of Prussia, but was turned into its own state and given to Napoleon's brother. And what the idea was that Westphalia was to become sort of a model state in the German area. Um, Napoleon initiated a lot of um, changes too. There's the Code Civil that goes back to, to the Napoleonic area. So there were more liberties than in the often very Catholic areas in the German uh, states. There was some conflict around it, as you can imagine, but the idea was to create Westphalia as a model that the other states would follow. It didn't quite work out that way, but you know, it was an attempt. Here we have Neapel, Napoli, Spain and Denmark. We have Russia, 1812. Obviously a bad idea, as we all know. Again, Prussia, Austria-Hungary, with some updates on the hats, compare it to up here. And then again, Spain, England, Nassau, the Netherlands, and another area in Germany, Braunschweig. So we are in 1805 right now and Napoleon is during his most successful time. The Holy Roman Empire has fallen apart. France has taken on some areas left of the River Rhine and in return has promised the states that have given up this territory additional territories on the right side and they've gained quite a lot of territory. Among them are Baden and Bavaria but Austria is not yet um, on Napoleon's side. So basically these areas they look independent but they have joined Napoleon. Austria hasn't. And what you can see here, Austria makes a bit of a mistake and moves an army into Bavaria. We have a great number of Napoleonic forces crossing the River Rhine from all sides and moving down into Bavaria. And you can quickly see the dotted line here, the Austrian retreat, um, which ultimately leads to the Battle of Austerlitz, which is in Bohemia, where Napoleon had a great win. We also have Napoleonic forces moving into Tyrol. We have Innsbruck here, again with the Austrian retreat down towards Italy, towards Udine, and then back north. Uh, you can see Triestia, you can see Laibach, which is the old German name for Ljubljana, in Slovenia. We have Pressburg here, which is the old German name for Bratislava. 
And you can see a couple of Austrian forces here on the Kutuzov. But ultimately they were defeated. Here we have an image of uh, the Grande Armée in October 1805. Uh, Mack was without luck, so Mack is the officer that moved into Bavaria here at the start. This is a bit of an idolized image of Napoleon with his officers, including some uh, grenadiers of the Old Guard. They're on top of the Michelsberg. A small mountain uh, waiting for Mack and his officers and at the foot of the mountain we can see Austrian soldiers being led off by the French troops it also led to Napoleon moving forward to Vienna which I think ultimately is also why we have some of the uh, portraits of Napoleon here in Vienna. We have the cradle here in Vienna and here we see some details on the Battle of Austerlitz which was on the 2nd of December 1805. Um, it's really quite detailed with a couple of images and graphics but we are going to skip over this because I think there's only very little that I could tell you about it what I'd like to focus on is the next part here so Austria has lost to Napoleon but the other German force that's still resisting is Prussia so these are the two large uh, German forces basically that Napoleon had to deal with. These smaller ones largely um, joined him but Prussia and Austria didn't. So here we are 1806, the year afterwards. We have, um, this is a bit confusing, we have the blue line for um, the French troops and I think they meant to uh, draw this in red, the Prussian retreat. It shows it in blue, but I think it should be French because we can clearly see the red lines here. So Napoleon again crosses the Rhine, past Stuttgart up to Nuremberg, Bayreuth, Hof, Coburg, Saalfeld, Erfurt. splitting his troops and approaching from numerous angles we have the Prussian line here and then we can see the French troops continuing north into Prussia through Saxony it says here on the side that while initially in 1805 Prussia didn't support Austria and Russia fighting Napoleon 
The year afterwards, the Prussians challenged Napoleon. I'm not quite sure what that means in this case. However, they didn't have a good strategy. They split their army into two large sections, and the Grande Armee advanced from southern Germany and pretty much annihilated the Prussian army on the 14th of October near Jena and Auerstedt, which here we have Jena right here and Auerstedt here. So this is this area. The Prussian state ultimately collapsed and there were only a couple of smaller Prussian soldiers in the eastern area here as well as some isolated garrisons in Slesia and eastern Prussia. So, eastern Prussia would be here, this would be southern, and Slesia would be right here. So Napoleon at this point has defeated two of his main enemies, Prussia and uh, Austria. You can see another illustration here with these typical uniforms of the time. And also, um, if you want to have a quick look at the horses, Napoleon had uh, Arabian horses, if I remember correctly, which to me always stands out on these images. It's really noticeable. They are relatively small horses, quite light. They appear somewhat fragile, but they're desert horses, so they're very robust. But compared to uh, older war horses that you'd have in previous areas, they really look a lot smaller and, and just a lot more elegant. In fact, today it's quite rare to find a horse race without a bit of uh, Arabian blood in them. They're very, very popular. So, I used to go horse riding as a kid, so... <laughs> few small details on the side. In 1806-1807, during the winter, the French continued to advance into eastern Prussia. There was some fighting around Kaliningrad. And there were Russian and British attempts I don't know what this sentence is supposed to say, Danzig zu entsetzen. Uh, basically, to approach to Danzig, I think uh, they failed. The other um, enemy that Napoleon couldn't advance against was England. Um, ever since Nelson defeated Napoleon's fleet in Egypt, there was basically no chance. And um, what Napoleon tried to do was to cut off the English from their trade with the continent, which worked relatively well, but of course was extremely difficult, especially for northern Germany, the former states of the Hanse, which is a trading uh, entity. If they can't trade, um, they're going to have economic trouble. However, I want to have a quick look again at a um, battle near Vienna. Um, 
where again Austria was defeated, but that's quite common at this point. This is really fascinating. Here we are in 1809. So we still don't have peace. There's been fighting going on for almost a decade. And again, we have French troops here, past Vienna basically. We have the inner city here. You can very nicely see the open space around it. And then what would today be the inner districts with the um, castle of Schimbrunn a little further down. You can see the canal that goes through Vienna. And you can see that the Danube's Danube has not yet been regulated. So you have a number of arms. It's a bit of a crisscross here with plenty of small islands throughout the river, which here in Vienna are often called Haufen, so a little heap. Um, one of them quite famous, the Lobau, which is a protected uh, area today. It's a natural habitat. It's not an island anymore, it's today would be Transdanubius on the other side of the Danube. But um, I went for a walk there last winter, together with half of Vienna, I think. There was not much that we could do otherwise. And you can see that there was a lot of fighting in the area. And if you look closely today, even when you go for a walk, you can find some monuments for the fallen soldiers of the French army here in uh, Lobau and Aspen, which would also be here. Um, the Austrian army actually succeeded in Aspen. Napoleon seemed to be quite impressed. However, it continued a little further north here in Wagram and that's where the Austrian army was defeated. So ultimately not much was won. You can hear this was the younger brother of the emperor, Yatsyatsoka. Which would again be illustrated here, around Wagram. In 1810, we finally have another map of what Europe looked like. We can see that France has extended considerably. Obviously, it is not possible to extend beyond the border of the sea. But we can see here, it's taken Catalonia. So Barcelona now is French, or at least it was for five years. We can see that from Marseille, you can continue into Italy. All this here belonging to France. Tuscany is also gone to France. Austria has lost its connection to the sea. Trieste was Austrian before. This is all French now. So the entire Croatian coast, basically. 
and you can see in the north that France has crossed the Rhine River, goes through Cologne, and here cuts across all the way to the Baltic Sea. This is really fascinating, I didn't know that. So Hamburg along the border to Denmark, all the way to the Baltic Sea. And of course, Belgium and the Netherlands are all moved into France. We have Westphalia here, which I've already mentioned, which was governed by Napoleon's brother. We can see that most of Italy was governed by uh, Napoleon's family. as well as Spain Here we have uh, the Kingdom of Varsovia which is dependent on France as well as the Confederation of the Rhine So the old Holy Roman Empire is broken apart and instead we have this connection here of um, the different German states. There's a great number of German states. I think there's up to 40 different entities in this confederation. So it's not like it's easy to govern. But the the goal of Napoleon also wasn't to create a new state here, but rather to assert his influence over the German regions. And then of course we have the Austrian Empire with Hungary noted here, which to me looks very, very strange because you do have Bohemia and then here you have Styria and Carinthia but what's cut off is this entire part here which is Tyrol and Vralberg. We talked a little bit about Tyrol last time. In Tyrol, actually, this was not an easy area for Napoleon either. The Tyrolean population was not happy. And in 1809, um, there were a lot of insurrections against the not just the French troops, but also the Bavarian troops, which were brought into the country. And the famous leader of the insurrection was Andreas Hofer. I'm not quite sure if this is supposed to be him. He's usually depicted with a beard. Um, very famous person um, who's still celebrated today as basically a hero of Tyrol. And he's also um, featured in the Tyrolean anthem. So very famous person. much all of um, Europe is under the control of Napoleon. Austria has been defeated numerous times. Uh, Russia has been defeated a couple of times when they moved uh, forward. He's been at war with the Ottoman Empire, though I think that was a bit of a, a smaller part of Napoleon's adventures. And he's not been able to defeat the UK. But he's tried to block the UK from trade with continental Europe, basically by blocking the entire coastline. 
which seems quite strange um, I think I don't need to go into details of what happened next we know that in 1812 to 1814 Napoleon tried to move into Russia during winter so a notoriously bad idea the army made it all the way to Moscow however at this point had also lost a great number of soldiers there was about a half million men that moved into Russia and not even 20,000 came back so I think really a great tragedy Oddly enough, Napoleon did not seem defeated. Uh, he came back and tried to create a new army. But ultimately, he'd shown weakness and he'd shown that he could be defeated. And in 1813, near Leipzig, he finally really was defeated. He was exiled to Elba, um, a small island just off the coast of Italy came back for a hundred days and then was exiled again a lot further away to St. Helena which is um, quite far south <laughs> so very far away and again we can see here one of the really gorgeous horses I love these So, what we've had under Napoleon were basically a decade and a half of war across Europe with numerous changes to the political landscape. In 1814, Chancellor Metternich, whom I've mentioned earlier, uh, invited everyone to a congress in Vienna, the Wiener Congress, where it was decided how um, Europe was supposed to go forward and how the um, borders were supposed to be redrawn. We can see that France moves back into its uh, borders, Catalonia goes back to Spain, the Netherlands are a state of its own again here, Netherlands and Belgium still together. We can see Italy is not yet unified, so again a number of smaller states. The same is true for um, the German states. You have Bavaria here, Saxony, Baden, Württemberg. We have Prussia on this side and on this side. Again along the Baltic Sea here. We can see Finland and now belongs to the Russian Empire. Uh, I think it was just a small corner on the first map where it was colored in with Sweden. And Norway is no longer with Denmark, but rather with Sweden. So some changes here in Scandinavia too. The Ottoman Empire is still here in the south. And the Austrian Empire regains a lot of its territories. We can see Tyrol is regained here with southern Tyrol. 
as well as with some parts of Italy and not just Trieste but here also the Croatian coastline goes to the Austrian Empire and the Holy Roman Empire wasn't resurrected but we can see a new red line here this is called the Deutsche Bund and there are some changes that start in this time that would have um, sort of a rippling effect throughout the next hundred years the Austrian Empire would exist for about another hundred years from this point on and one of the big problems with it uh, sort of with its multi-ethnic nature is that with Napoleon you also have the idea that you could create a national state or a nation-state specifically that there could be one unified German nation in one state and the question is does that include the German areas of Austria or does it not? and this really was a question for quite a long time um, in German this is discussed as either a Großdeutsche Lösung so a greater Germany or a Kleindeutsche Lösung so without the Austrian parts ultimately became Kleindeutsch without Austria but it also led to a couple of issues here in um, what's at this time the, the German area of Austria during this time there's no such thing as an Austrian nation there's a, an Austrian Empire there are two regions that are called Austria, Upper and Lower Austria and the Habsburgs call themselves Casa de Austria but the people that live here in what is Austria today would be Germans so you would have Hungarians here you would have Germans here you would have Italians down here there's no such thing as actual Austrians in terms of nationality and this would sort of play out for quite a long time the question of who Austrians actually are this would become a matter of the 20th century so there are small changes that start here that really would have quite large effects um, this entire issue of the nation states that was brought into the German areas during the time of Napoleon not necessarily saying that it was Napoleon who started this but of course with the French Revolution it's definitely uh, just an era when this question would come up Alright, so I think that was quite a dense video, uh, quite a lot of information. I hope you enjoyed it and next week you're gonna do something a little easier again. Until then, I hope you sleep well. Thank you for watching. <laughs>